Thanks, Reina. Yeah, it's, I don't know if everyone would agree with him all the time, but, uh, but uh, I try not to cut corners. I've got a lot of people that, that help me to, to know when I'm cutting corners so I can stop while I'm busy with it, so that helps a lot. So, <laughs> um, Let me just pray for us quickly. Lord, I just um, thank you for the, for the worship that we could have, Lord. Thank you that we are in your presence, Lord God. Thank you that you are drawing us to yourself, Lord God. I thank you that the, the divide that there was between us, Lord, that that has been broken, Lord. Thank you that the veil has been torn, Lord, and that we have access into your presence, Lord, into your very throne room, Lord. And I thank you that as you're drawing us to yourself, Lord, I thank you that you'll reveal yourself to us, Lord. Reveal to us your plan, Lord. Reveal to us your, your heart, Lord, and um, just pull us to yourself, Lord. We just give this time to you, Lord. Uh, we, we just pray, Lord, that you will, you will speak to each and every one of us, Lord, in the way that you want to speak to us, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm talking about quite a familiar scripture uh, and passage of scripture this morning um, about the, the fish and the loaves and the multiplication that Jesus went through. But uh, as I read through it um, a few weeks ago, God really started showing me something different uh, that came out of it. And I actually, as I read it, I understood something that God has been busy with me uh, for the last three, four years. He's been busy revealing that to me, but I never really understood it. Uh, somehow it was operating through my life already, but I never really understood it. And I want to share it with you. I really believe it's a, it's a key and uh, it holds a bit of a, a prophetic uh, a time that, that lies ahead of us. I really trust that it's also a prophetic word um, and, that, and that you guys will be encouraged by it. So there's no condemnation. Uh, sometimes my words come across quite harsh, uh, or not harsh, tough. Um, I, I don't believe that God sent us here for, for us to live in comfort and security and uh, for it to be easy. So sometimes I just convey that message again to everyone else. So, uh, but don't be condemned uh, or offended. If you're offended, come speak to me, please, afterwards. Um, so let's dive straight into that scripture. Um, the, the, the title of my sermon is Returning Back to Eden. And uh, it's really something that I feel God has been, been uh, sort of revealing to me that he wants us to come back. Uh, into the place where Adam and Eve was originally with him. Uh, so I'll get through that in more detail. Let's first read John 6, verse 5 to 7. When Jesus looked up uh, and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to even have just a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About, about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. So this uh, normal scripture, we all know it, and we're all um, blown away by the miracle that Jesus did. But I, I want us to just take it step by step, uh, because I think there's something that God is wanting to reveal to us through it. So the first part of it, um, verse 5, um, when Jesus looked up and he saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, directly to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked it only to test him, for he already had in mind. Was he. So this is something that I really believe God does to us. Um, and he's been doing it to me a lot over the last few years. I mean, there's a people all around us. There's an overwhelming need. The people are hungry. And, uh, and, and Jesus knows what he wants to do. Um, I think this is the, 
uh, really significant for where we are as a nation as well. There's a, there's a great need around us, and the, the people are hungry, uh, not only physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. And Jesus has seen that, um, and, and he knows what he wants to do. But then he asks Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And it, and it says here that he, that he, he asks it to Philip because he wanted to test his heart. And uh, I don't know about you, but I mean, for me, I, if, if God asks you a question like that, I mean, where, where, do you, where does your mind immediately jump towards? Um, and and I, the, the response that Philip gave you, I think, is indicative of the response that a lot of us give to Jesus. And, uh, and that's why I just want to go and see why do we, why do we respond the way we do or, or the way that Philip responded at least to Jesus. Because if he already knows what he wants to do, um, and, and it's, if we understand that it's not just about us, then it, then it actually helps us a lot. I remember a few years back, just a personal story, I was uh, working for an American company and I did some work in Africa and I came back and I really felt God starting to lay the farm workers of the Western Cape on my heart. Um, and I, I decided to do a research project. So we took about a thousand farm workers and we, we analyzed their debt situation and their financial situation because that was my background. Um, and uh, I realized it's a complete mess. I mean, a lot of the guys were stuck in debt. I mean, they just none of them or almost none of them were properly saving and, and earning interest on that. So, and then I was walking. I remember walking in the mountain one day there on Lion's Head. Um, and I vividly recall God asking me, so what are we going to do about this? So um, very similar to what he, what he asked Philip. I mean, and I, and I immediately sat down and I thought, yes. What are we going to do about this? This is a national crisis. Crisis, and uh, and I understood that it was a, a big issue. So it wasn't uh, people that were hungry that had an instant sort of needed to be fed, but it was a bigger systemic problem in our country. And I really felt God asking me, "What are we going to do?" So I said, "Look, I I don't know uh, how we're going to deal this, but I I'm going to take a step of faith and I'm going to resign and I'm going to try and do something about this full time." So I remember at the time, I had a uh, there was one farm that a good friend of mine had, um, and he. He had about 13 employees there, and I had been working with them, so I knew exactly what their debt situation was. So I said, look, I'm just going to start. I'm, I literally cashed in my pension, because I resigned, cashed in my pension, and I settled all the farm workers' debts and, uh, as a start to try and see what was going to happen. And it was literally, um, I, I don't want to go through all the detail, but within, within a few years now, looking back, I mean, within 13, 13 months, the farm workers had all paid me back, and they all started saving properly. But... Uh, but, but there was something that, that started, I mean, with, uh, in my opinion, it was just two fishes and five uh, pieces of bread. In my case, it was the little bit of pension that I had saved up. But God started something that has now grown into, into quite a significant um, initiative that's helping thousands of farm workers across the country. But the, be- the beginning of it was me walking in the mountain um, and God laying this on my heart um, and asking me, what are we going to do about it? Do you get where I'm going with this? So how did Philip respond when God asked him, what are we going to do about this? So let's just have a look at Philip's response. Verse 7, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one of them to have a bite. I often hear people, uh, when I speak to people, they come to me and they say, yes, I really want to do something about this. I feel God has uh, called me to... uh, building my house, or I feel God has called me to, to, to really to take care of this, this group of people or do something about it, but it's going to cost like X, okay? In this case, half a year's wages. I mean, just the context here, these disciples were going with Jesus. Um, 
for quite a few days before this, and uh, he was doing miracles everywhere. He was healing people. I mean, the supernatural was manifesting. The disciples were right there. They saw it with their own eyes, and uh, they knew that Jesus was not bound to the natural. Um, but the moment that Jesus asked Philip, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed these people? He immediately reverts back to, to the natural, right? He immediately goes back to what he, the, the system that he's been used to all his life. Um, that he's grown accustomed to, uh, the system of lack and the system of, I only have so much. And he was probably, as a fisherman, I don't know, was Philip a fisherman? Probably. All of them were almost fishermen. So, but I mean, can you just imagine how much they were earning? Must, it must be like, what's it, four or five thousand in a month, uh, if not less than that. And a half a year's wages, that's about, what, 50,000 rand or something like that, that it was going to cost. And I mean, he was, his immediate response was like, where are we going to get 50,000 rand? So I immediately, when I read this thing to myself, Imagine sort of the wealthiest man in the world stood there, okay? What's his name now? The Amazon founder guy, Jeff Bezos, Bezos, no longer Bill Gates. So imagine he was standing there um, in Jesus' place, and he asked Philip sort of where are we going to get money uh, or where are we going to find enough bread for these people to eat. Can you imagine like Philip saying to him, 50,000 rand, where do you think we're going to get 50,000 rand? To him, I mean... It wouldn't even, he wouldn't even notice it on his bank statement, right? 50,000 rand. So it shows you how Philip viewed Jesus um, in a sense, which, which struck me. Um, and I think it's something that we have, to, we have to dig into and understand why he thought this way. Because I think a lot of us, and including myself, still think this way. And we limit God. We don't understand that he is the, the creator of the universe. Um, and that his son has been there all the way through. And if he asks us to do something, we, we better not limit him right and we better not think this way so any case um i think uh, just in terms of how i think philip got to this place i think we need to go and understand where this system um that of of the natural of the self-inclination of thinking limitation where that started and where that originated i think it's important from a context point of view because we, we all need to go back and deal with that, uh, because it's, it's, it's a part of all of us. So it started way back in the Garden of Eden, and uh, it was all going well. God placed man and female, male and female, in the garden, and he gave them authority over everything um, that he had made, right? So they had access to everything. I mean, they were fruit. They were everything that they could ever need was available to them. They lived in God's abundance, uh, in his fullness, okay? They never really had a need to to try and uh, store up for themselves or fend for themselves because God had provided for them abundantly, right? And then we all know the story. The serpent came and the serpent tempted Eve and he said, well, there was first of all, there was one rule that God gave them. You shall not eat of the tree um, in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, the serpent came and he said, no, if you eat of this fruit, it's, uh, it says there that Eve looked at the fruit and it, it looked good for eating and for gaining wisdom. And, 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 uh, and the serpent told her, you shall not die if you eat it. But what Eve then happened is in the midst of all of this abundance that God had already given her, she still felt that, she, uh, that this was going to take her even one step further. There was this, this, this selfish ambition of gaining more authority, gaining more knowledge, um, elevating yourself to the place where God was. And then obviously that uh, triggered a whole response, and it triggered two, what I like to call curses. I think it was curses, but it, 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 it caused God to take severe action, um, and God was saying to them. But there was two things that happened that I think is important for us to understand. 
the first thing, which I think is the, the primary implication of that sin, was, the, was uh, Genesis 3, verse 22 to 24. It says, The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. I never really read this, this part, but now it's starting to make sense to me because that refers to eternal life. Okay? So God basically said we must, uh, there's no longer eternal life. We cannot allow man to have access to eternal life. Um, and then so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So the primary implication of what Adam and Eve did in the garden was a separation from God, right? The fact that they could no longer have access to eternal life and to the, gar uh, to the garden. But the second uh, implication, which I think is equally profound, is the fact that where they were once in God's complete abundance and they had access to all the uh, fruit in the garden and all of God's abundance, they now were removed out of that and they were outside of it. So not only did they no longer have eternal life and separation from God, they were also taken from God's abundance and from his, his, uh, his garden and they were placed outside where they had to fend for themselves and work in the sweat of their brow. They would earn their bread. And that introduced a new system. That introduced a new, uh, a new type of economic system that where, where you no longer have access to God's abundance. You have to work hard, till the ground, fend for yourself, uh, save up enough to make sure that you're going to be okay. You have to um, just look out for yourself, right? Because you're exposed out there, uh, outside of God's garden and His protection and in, in fellowship with Him, you're exposed. And I think that triggered uh, a type of, of, of system and thinking in man that they never had to do when they were in the garden, right? And it perpetuated all the way through. What, what happened is man became increasingly more selfish. There was increasingly more scarcity, pain, suffering, to the point where there was so much of evil and ungodliness that God sent the flood and it was only Noah that survived. But, but that system is still very much in place today. The system of operating outside of God's abundance, outside of His provision, where there's lack, where there is, um, where there is constant suffering and where there's a shortage and a need for self, uh, for looking after yourself, that system is still in place today, okay? So what happened is God came to a point where he decided that I no longer want man to be separated from me. I no longer want man to live um, in this system where they've become accustomed to, where I initially had to put them into. I think while we were worshiping, I just really sensed that this, it, how, how difficult it was for God to make that decision in the garden. I was quite overwhelmed uh, by, by God having to, when, when Adam and Eve decided that, look, he had already decided beforehand. He had already made the decision, and God doesn't go back on his word, and he doesn't go back on his decision. So there was finality when he decided, when he gave that instruction to Adam and Eve. So he had to go through with it, and he had to send man out of the garden. But I just felt this, uh, the, some part of God's heart, um, and, and that's why it resonated so much um, with me when you shared that vision of God wanting us to come back and sit on his lap um, with, with our heads on his chest because he's so longing for us to come back into fellowship with him. But we've been separated, um, and, and we had been uh, put outside. So, but the first thing that he did is he sent his son, Jesus. Okay, And, uh, 
And now, after however many years it was, 4,000 years after what happened in the Garden of Eden, he sent his son, Jesus. And there's, the, we all know the story of how Jesus died on the cross and how his blood cleanses us and how the veil was torn and how we've gained access back again to the Father. And I've thought about this many times and we've now got eternal life again. Remember that uh, part of the garden where he said you no longer have access to the tree of life. We now have eternal life again through Jesus and through his blood. And I've know, I know this very well, and we all, I think all of us know this because it's such a strong part of the teaching um, in the church is this salvation that we get when we um, acknowledge and confess that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. But there's a secondary implication of what happened when Jesus died on the cross that I don't think all of us understand and that all of us live in the fullness of it. But what I believe and, and what I felt God showing me is what, what happened is the day that Jesus died on the cross... The veil was torn. Um, at the time, there was obviously the temple that they built, um, and there was a holy of holies, and then the inner court and the outer court, but the, the veil separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple, and it was only the priests that were allowed to go in after long fasting to go and make atonement for the sins of the people. So we all know that the veil was torn, and we have access to that again, but God showed me another picture of what happened when Jesus died on the cross, and what happened is there was a there was the, the angels that were placed there um, with a flaming sword of fire to protect the tree of life and to protect the garden of God's abundance is actually we now gain access back again into that garden, okay? It's a very different, uh, uh, it's a different way of thinking about it, but that is to do with the two systems at play. Um, we need to transition from the system of the world that was triggered when Adam and Eve was thrown out of the garden, which is a system of lack and of decay and of selfishness and of looking out for yourself, back into a system of getting access to God's abundance and operating from the garden where we're in His presence, um, but we also have access to everything that He has in store for us. Some of us have got Jesus, of, uh, we've accepted Jesus, and we've been washed clean, but we haven't transitioned back into the garden, Right? And I think that's what, what, uh, what happened to Philip, is he, he, was, he, he knew Jesus and he, and he knew what was happening there, but he hadn't understood this, this, this access that he's going to have back into the, into the garden of God's abundance. So he was still thinking, desert, outside of the garden, how much money is it going to cost? How much do I have? I need to, we need to, uh, I'm going to have to work six months to get back the money that I'm going to have to spend to give these people food. It's a, it's a systemic way of, uh, in which all of us think. So you can skip uh, straight over to that. And I want to focus uh, on that re redemptive plan part two. I think we, where we need to focus our, our energy and efforts and what I feel God is wanting to talk to us again about today is not so much the salvation component because we've heard about that a lot, but it's moving out of the system, recognizing the system for what it is. Um, and when we see it and when we have a temptation to operate back into that system that we decide not to so that we can stay and remain in the garden um, with God because this, this keeps us actually in bondage. Um, it keeps us away from, from uh, releasing God's abundance um, to the nations and to the people around us, okay? And remember, going back to the story of the loaves and the fishes, I really believe prophetically God is going to start impressing on each and every one of our hearts. Um, maybe it's one person, maybe it's a group of people, maybe it's a, it's a systemic issue in our country, maybe it's the political sphere, maybe it's the legal sphere, maybe it's the entertainment area, wherever you're in. God might start showing you the need and he might start showing you the lack um, and he already has in mind what he wants to do to redeem that, those people. Um, 
but he's going to come to you specifically. He didn't go to his disciples and say, what are we going to do as a group? He went to Philip specifically, and he asked Philip, what are we going to do about this? Um, and I believe he's going to do that uh, with each and every one of us. But when he asks us that, we need to make sure that we're not thinking uh, we're operating in the right system uh, so that we can unlock his abundance, right? So that system, I like to just think of it maybe as the desert and the garden. Um, the desert is a place where you have to, uh, uh, the system of the world, you have to hoard all the scarce resources. You need to try and collect as much as you can while you're here, um, and you need to just constantly, all of us are in uh, scrambling for this, right? And the garden is a place where you don't have to think like that. Uh, God, there is abundant provision for everyone, and God wants to release that abundance, right? So it's just a, a way in which we think, and we need to constantly, as we go out, identify the places where we're still thinking like this. The other concept that, uh, that resonates or that, that I've also seen and picked up with the desert and the garden is the concept of ownership. In the, uh, in the desert, in the world out there, everyone is trying to get access to something and to as many things as possible and they feel like they own it, whether it be livestock or land or houses or cars or anything. The concept of ownership is, is quite big in the, in the worldly uh, system. In God's system, in the garden, Adam and Eve didn't walk around thinking, what do they own? Uh, they were just placed there as stewards, and they understood that they, only, they didn't own anything, but they only had stewardship. I'll go to a scripture just now to explain that. The other thing is operating from a place of fear um, with all these other things around you. How are you going to survive? How is my family going to survive? How am I going to make do with what I have? The place of fear to a place of trust, uh, knowing that, that God's abundance is there. Um, the prosper of self, the prosper of others. It's ultimately a kingdom of, of self. Um, it, we always call it the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of evil or the kingdom of the world. But it's really just a place where man gives in to his selfish nature. Um, and, uh, and, and this is something that I also felt as I was preparing for the sermon. It started becoming clear to me that and I do not... I do not, I fully understand that our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the forces and principalities of the air, I understand that, but the way in which that battle plays out is to me a very different way than what I traditionally thought. I always thought it needs to, we just need to pick up our authority and bash the demons and trample upon them and go out, but what I, what I felt God saying to me is that battle is a very personal one. Um, it's something where Adam and Eve was in the garden and the serpent just came and he just tempted the desire and, and raise the desire for self-edification, for self-protection, for self, um, uh, some, for, for gathering for yourself as opposed to others. That's how the enemy constantly works. Look at Jesus when he was in the desert. The enemy didn't, it wasn't a battle. He didn't have to like defeat the enemy. The enemy is there. He's always going uh, to be there until we reach the end, uh, right? The new world, right? But for now, He's still going to be there. Whether you're in the garden or whether you're in the desert, the enemy is there. And he's constantly trying to tempt us to, take, to look back into the selfish system and to revert back to the worldly system as opposed to going into the abundance of God because he knows that once we go into God's abundance, the kingdom comes, right? Um, and, and then the people and the needs of the people are met, which he doesn't want. So let's just look at a scripture, um, Luke 12, verse 15 to 21. And this is Jesus speaking, and, I, and I, the more I now read the Bible and I think about these two systems, the more scriptures I find where Jesus was actually trying to, to, to tell people this. Um, but 
I think his, his teaching oftentimes was so foreign because of the use, we, we've got so used to the world system. And even now, today, when we read these things, we, we also look at it and we're like, yeah, Jesus was probably, this was some analogy, and yeah, he was, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but look at this. He was saying, this was an analogy. He said, he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. What a wonderful problem to have. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then... Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever who stores up for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So do you understand that Jesus was trying to expose the system of the world to the people as he was talking about this analogy? The hoarding of scarce resources. I've got, it's been great. I've got a good bonus from work or I've managed to do a good deal. Uh, I'm just going to build a bigger house or I'm going to put it more away or whatever else Jesus was trying to expose this thinking and he was trying to say that what what I ultimately think in the next I, I'm going to get to this in the next thing which dawned when it dawned uh, the the place it dawned for me was when I read the scripture in Psalm 50 verse 10 verse 9 and 10 and uh, I remember God uh, when when this happened as well and it really made a profound impact on my life it said it's the concept of ownership versus stewardship and it says that, uh, Psalm 50, verse 9 to 10, it says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects of the field is, are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Yes, and I remember reading that and thinking to myself, okay, Lord, so if the world is yours, and everything that is in it, what is mine? <laughs> um, if everything that is now yours, now what, what does that leave for me? And it, the logical uh, uh, answer is nothing. <laughs> okay, I will never own anything. Not the shirt that I'm wearing or the shoes that I'm wearing or the pants that I'm wearing. Because God owns the world and everything that is in it. And unfortunately that also applies for all of you guys. You will never own anything. You will never own anything. I want to say it again. You will never own anything. <laughs> it's important we understand this. God owns everything. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, six, seven years old, um, I was uh, in church and uh, there was a the Domini on the stage uh, took out a 10 rand note from his pocket and he said, all the children were sitting in the front, and he said, who wants this 10 rand? And I remember, like, and I got up, and I went, and I got the 10 rand. And as he gave it to me, he said, you need to uh, give it to that boy. He's sitting there, please. And I was like, oh, okay. Gave it to the boy, and he called me back up, and he said, okay, so um, was it difficult for you to give the 10 rand to the boy? And uh, I remember this, this very vividly, this whole experience. And I said, no, it wasn't difficult because you just gave it to me and I just gave it to the boy. It was never mine. 
and now that I'm much older, I understand uh, what that meant. Um, because if, if what we sometimes do is God gives us something for someone else, but then we first sit on the sack, and then we uh, maybe we invest a little bit, and we uh, get used to the idea of what we can buy with that 10 rand. And then sometimes a few, a few months or years later, God asks us to give that away because it was never ours to start out with. And he always just gave it to us so that we can pass it on to someone else. But we've gotten very used to it. And, uh, and now it's more difficult because now it's part of my retirement planning, you see. And uh, I, uh, I need to uh, now fend for myself here. I need to make sure that I'm going to be okay. And there is a biblical concept of storing up for your family and for your children's children. I'm not dissing the, the thing, but are you operating from a place of fear and scarcity and wanting to just put away as much as you can? Or are you operating from God's abundance? Because God has abundantly prepared for you and your family and your children and your children's children. He has already prepared for you. It's not up to you to prepare for your family and your family's family. It's for you to untap and unlock God's abundance for your family. And that's a very different way of thinking about it. I'm digressing a bit, yeah. Um, so, actually, it's a very short and sweet word. Uh, I don't know how long I've been busy with it. I never really know because I don't have a uh, thing here. But what I really feel is, is that this is prophetically, I trust and I, um, that God is going to start in uh, talking. I'll tell you another story because I've got a lot of stories like this. The other time, uh, last year uh, in in uh, um, Easter, we have a family. My family comes from the Karoo. And uh, we have a sheep farm there that my mother inherited from her mother. And uh, we go there every Easter. Um, and it's a special time. And I remember not this Easter, the previous Easter, we were there. And we were driving back. And afterwards, everyone's tired. And I'm driving. And my wife and my children are sleeping. And we're just about 50, 60 kilometers away from the farm. And, and I remember vividly. God asking me a question. He said to me, where are the boys? The, the, uh, when we grew up on the farm, they, I didn't grow up on the farm. We used to go there every holiday. There used to be these, we used to call them clonkies, but there was back in the apartheid years, the children of the farm workers that we used to play with. And we used to play rugby with them. They were our best friends. Every holiday, I would look forward to seeing them again. I knew all of them. We were, at the age of six or seven, all of us were, were uh, they were actually faster than us. We used to go do all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and I remember their faces vividly, and I remember their names vividly, and I remember what we did vividly. And I, and I heard God asking me what happened to them. And uh, yes, and I, and I, I didn't know because I hadn't seen them for 20 years now, maybe even more, maybe 25 years I haven't seen them. And, uh, but I was stirred because God asked me this question. And uh, and I remember going back and trying to do everything I could to try and find out what happened to them. And uh, I got hold of uh, the grandmother, who was actually still uh, alive, of two of these boys. And uh, she said, uh, it's, it's bad. I mean, the six, because she knows everyone. They're still, the fam the, the, they're still all going on there. But it's really a... And she said, now, of the six that I could remember, um, two of them had already passed away. Uh, predominantly because of alcohol abuse, and they just didn't make it to the age of 30. The other four, of the other four, all of them have, sorry, all of the other four have children with more than one wife, and none of them are married, and only one of them have a job, and they're, 30, they're my age, 33. 
yes, and I felt, God, what? What are you trying to tell me this? Why, why did you send me down this, this rabbit hole of discouragement? And uh, I just felt God saying, what are we going to do about this? So remember when God asked Philip, um, uh, what are we going to do about these people? He's, it says that he already knew what he wanted to do. Okay. Now, I didn't think this way when God asked me the question, but I just remember calling up all the other um, uh, children or people that are my age that are now well-to-do living in the city of Cape Town or Joburg or wherever, and I asked them the same question. I said, we need to get together. We need to talk about this because all of us, we left them behind. We didn't, we didn't bring them with us. And uh, not like we really could because we were the same age as them, so we couldn't really bring them with us. But you understand what I mean? I feel a sense of responsibility towards them. And, uh, and the, the one guy... Uh, who some of you might know, Andres Fulyun, from, uh, he's also from there, he also grew up, he also had children like that. I told him, Andres, we need to do something, we need to do it quickly. There's an urgency on my spirit, yeah, God wants to do something. He's already made, he's already uh, prepared what he wanted to do, right? That I know now, I didn't know it then. And Andres tells me, he won't believe me. So, um, so he says, uh, about two years before, this was now last year Easter, so two years before that, uh, a guy came to them and he said, I want you to buy this farm from us outside of, of uh, Victoria West. It sort of borders on the, on the, on the town. And uh, they said, look, we don't have the money. Uh, we can't buy the farm. And the guy said, no, I really feel you must buy the farm. So you must make a plan. So they, they said, okay, uh, give us three months. We'll try and make a plan to buy the land. And uh, in those three months, they prayed as a family and they trusted God to provide. Um, and the, his brother, Andres' brother, noticed this this uh, um, springbok in the felt, uh, that was quite a big one with big horns and everything. And he said, this, this is a big springbok. We need to try and sell this, uh, put this on an auction and try and sell it. And they said to him, look, man, the highest price ever paid by anyone for a springbok is 80,000 rand. Okay. They want 1.2 million rand for the farm. Okay. So, but okay, we'll put the, the thing on an auction. And they put it on an auction, and it sold for exactly 1.2 million rand, okay? And they bought the piece of land. But now, uh, do you get where I'm going? God asks me, driving from there, what are we going to do about it? But he's already started way back. Um, he's already started making provision, and he's already unlocked his abundance for the people of that town. And uh, all, all we need to do is get back into that abundance. So I think within... Eight months after the conversation that I had in the car with God, we, had a, we opened the skills development center there on that land, and we got our first full-time staff, uh, uh, students in, trying to get them to uh, obviously understand family values, godly character, and also skills. So now all the young people from the town comes in for course, short courses uh, where they get mechanic skills and butcher skills and animal handling skills, whatever else. Do you understand where God, he, he just comes and he just asks you, what are we going to do about this? Um, and uh, I mean, I had another, I have another example like this. I can keep you busy for quite a while, but I only understand it now because understanding it now that God, this, this concept of abundance, and I can't wait for the next time God's going to ask me for something because now I understand this. So about three years ago, I remember a lady came to see me, Agnes, um, uh, she had a vision and a, a desire to, for the orphans in 
the country, she told me, I remember she came to see me in my office here in Cape Town. She said, look, we, there's 5 million orphan and vulnerable children in South Africa. Just in Stellenbosch alone, there's about 2,000 children that have already gone through the system, but they don't have a place to go. So they're still sitting with their abusive families, but they need a place to go to. And I remember when, when she told me that, I said, Nia, that this isn't right. We need to make a plan. And she said, we need to make a plan. So I said, yeah, we need to make a plan. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I remember um, uh, about a few days later, she, she called me and she said, look, I found a piece of land on the internet. Just, it's inside Stellenbosch, but it's close to the N1. Um, I think it's the right place. So I said, okay, let's go and have a look. So we drove and we had a look. And it was a dilapidated old farm. Um, cost a lot of money. But in any case, we had a look. And, uh, and then we, had a, we called a bunch of people together this, the week thereafter. And we said we need people to come and help us think, what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this land? So a bunch of people rocked up at a house in Stellenbosch. And the one guy... Uh, when we shared the story, he said, I, on the same day that we went to go look at the farm, he also rocked up there and he, and he drove into the farm, but it, there's no for sale signs or anything, and he just felt that farm is the right farm. So he said, okay, so you're now also part of this, uh, this deal. We need to figure it out. And w- I said, I know a guy who can farm with blueberries. He's good with blueberries, so he can come. What if we build an orphanage and then we farm with blueberries and then we raise money from people who want to contribute to the orphanage to, to, to hold, develop the whole thing. And I, I, I think it was six months after the meeting with Agnes uh, in Cape Town that we had already bought the farm and started working on the orphanage. And I think within 12 months, the first children started coming in and the first blueberries were planted. But God provided through so many people, you won't believe. Like he'd already planned beforehand, and this is the beauty of it. So it's never really just you and your uh, he asked Philip, but it wasn't up to Philip to sort the whole thing out. It was God that already had made a plan, and he had already prepared a bunch of people. But sometimes he just wants one person to just instigate and get it going. Maybe you're just that person that needs to just get the people around the table. Don't feel like you're going to have to solve all the world's problems because you're never going to be able to solve all the world's problems. But at least be obedient in, 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 in speaking to people uh, when God has, has laid something on your heart. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's... Uh, pray. Thank you, Lord, that, um, that you are busy stirring in all of our hearts, Lord. You've actually started long ago already, Lord. I pray that you bring to remembrance the things that you've already um, started stirring in our hearts, Lord, and every person here, Lord. I pray that you remind us of the things that you want us to, to, to think about, Lord, and of the things that you want us to start getting involved with, Lord, outside of church, Lord, out there where the need is and where the lack is, Lord. You know exactly what you want to do, Lord. You know exactly how you want to to meet the needs of the people, Lord. You're, you've unlocked the provision from your garden of abundance, Lord God. And I thank you that we can get, get back into your garden, Lord. I pray that you show us, Lord, where we're still adhering to a worldly system of thinking, where we still, um, by our own doing, Lord, staying outside of your abundance and outside of your provision, Lord. We repent, Lord, of, of thinking and limiting you, Lord God. You are the king of the universe. own the cattle of a thousand hills, Lord. The world and everything that is in it belongs to you, Lord. 
thank you that we can be in, live in your abundance, Lord. Lord, I pray that you will break our hearts, Lord, for what is breaking your heart, Lord. You'll stir us up, Lord, with a, with a boldness, Lord God, and with the urgency, Lord, that we will not tarry, we will not waste any more time, Lord God, but we will un unlock and untap tap into your abundance, Lord God, and release that abundance, Lord, to the people around us, Lord, that are suffering, Lord, that need it, Lord God. Thank you that we can take people from the desert, Lord, and we can bring them into your garden, Lord, where they too can experience your abundance, Lord. Lord, help us to stand strong when the temptation of self comes in, Lord God. When the enemy comes against us, Lord, to try and convince us to look after ourselves, Lord, I pray that you will, you will help us to rule over the enemy like you've called us to rule over the enemy, Lord God. And as you have ruled over temptation, Lord God, I thank you that you will help us to rule over temptation, Lord God. Thank you that you will show us, start showing us, Lord, what do you have provided already for us, Lord, that was never intended for us, Lord so that we can get, start getting rid of the things that are blocking the dam, Lord God, where you want to just pour in again, Lord. But we just block the dam, Lord. And uh, we're not letting it flow out, Lord, to the people that need it downstream, Lord. And I, I thank you that you'll help us unblock our own dams, Lord, and, uh, and release the water, Lord, the living water, Lord God, for the people downstream, Lord God. And I, now we just praise you, Lord. Amen.